Welcome again to King's Cross. Uh, If you're new this morning, it's your first time. I'm Taylor. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we've been preaching over the last few months through the New Testament letter called Galatians. We're picking up in Galatians 3 this morning. As I was thinking about this passage and uh, the book of Galatians in general, my mind went back to weird but true laws. Uh, When I was a kid, there was always this this story, and I didn't know at the time if it was true or not, but that in my home state, in the state of Kentucky, that it was illegal to walk around with an ice cream cone in your back pocket. And we always wondered why that might be the case. And evidently, in a time when horses were the primary means of transportation, and maybe this was particularly true in a, in a state where horse racing is a part of the industry, that people would uh, loosen horses from the post that they were tied up to and stick an ice cream cone in their back pocket and walk away and steal the horse because the horse would follow them. So they'd just be whistling down the street and walking as this stolen horse is following them. And as I thought about that, I started looking at other weird but true laws a confession. You know, it used to be like you couldn't cite Wikipedia for papers. Uh, I think Wikipedia may actually be more reliable now, but I'm citing BuzzFeed and that's not reliable. So I don't know how many of these are real. But I did read that in the states of Oklahoma and Ohio, it's illegal to make faces at dogs. I don't know why that might be. Uh, In the state of Florida, evidently, it is illegal to sing in your swimsuit. Now, I can't imagine that that still is true, but I actually like where they're going with this. And if they could just update the law and make it illegal to play music from speakers while in your swimsuit, then those of us who go to the beach with a book or with our families wouldn't have to listen to your music, which you didn't ask us for permission to play loudly. No offense if you do that. Uh, In the state of Alabama, it's illegal to drive blindfolded. Uh, lots of bath-related laws, like apparently at some point it was illegal in the state of California to eat an orange in the bath, and in the state of Arizona, this is the most specific law I saw, you can't have a donkey sleeping in your bathtub after 7 p.m. <laughs> and evidently there was a real incident with a bathtub and a donkey and uh, some sort of flood, and I, I don't really understand what exactly happened. But generally, no matter how weird these laws are, when you look into them, there's a reason. Now, in my opinion, these may not be the kinds of things that are ever going to happen again, so you probably don't need to make a law for it. But where there's a law, there's a reason. And the same is true of God's law. We've been talking a lot in Galatians about the law of God. And there's a reason that God gives his law. But the Apostle Paul, who wrote Galatians, thinks that the reason for the law had gotten lost on the church that he was writing to. And so we're going to see that today in Galatians chapter 3. Now I'm going to read verses 10 through 24. Um, I preached 10 through 14 last week, but just for context, I'm going to read that again, but most of the sermon will come from kind of the second half of this passage. So Galatians 3, beginning in verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. 
Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed whom the promise, uh, to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. So is the law then contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. This is the word of the Lord. So a little review of Galatians or uh, just a quick intro to Galatians if you're just joining us for the first time this week. Uh, Paul, who planted these churches in modern-day Turkey, Galatia, uh, is writing to them because the gospel that he preached there has gotten confused. There's some false teachers, he calls them troublemakers, who have come in and stirred up the church by teaching false things. And in particular, the false things that they're teaching is that you have to do something, you have to perform well enough in order to be accepted and loved by God. So Paul's gospel was you are saved by grace through faith, full stop. You don't contribute anything to your salvation except the sin which Jesus died to save you from. But the the troublemakers, whom he calls Judaizers, uh, were coming in and they were saying, you actually, that's not enough. Yes, you need to have faith in Jesus. Yes, you need to believe in him, but you also need to obey these certain parts of the law if you want to be saved. And so far, the first two chapters of Galatians, Paul has just directly gone after that and said, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. You get to chapter three, and he starts giving some proof for why it's wrong. And in particular, his proof is from the Old Testament, which contains the Jewish law, the Mosaic law. And his point by appealing to the Old Testament is to say, this was never the purpose of the law. Even when the law was first given, it was never given so that you could obey it and earn your way into God's good graces. And so he quotes several Old Testament passages Back in verse six, which I didn't read, just above our text, he says, Abraham, this is a quote from Genesis 15, believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. So the the very father of our faith, he said, believed God. He simply had faith in what God said and that was his justification. He goes down, verse 10, if you don't obey the entire law, you're under a curse. That's Deuteronomy 27, 26. What's Paul saying? He's saying that the law can never justify anybody because the only way it could justify anybody is if you kept it perfectly and nobody has kept it perfectly. He goes on, verse 11, the righteous, he says, live not by the law but by faith. That's Habakkuk 2.4. And then he says the law is not based on faith but on doing, in verse 12. So you live by faith and not by the law but the law is based on not faith but doing. That's Leviticus 18.5. And in our text today, 
beginning in verse 15, he uses this metaphor of a human will. And his point is that God had already secured legally, formally, officially, this promise, this will, this inheritance to Abraham. And the law wasn't given until 430 years after that. So why would God all of a sudden change course, change paths to make acceptance on the basis of the law when he gave it 430 years before the law ever even came. To, to use maybe a more modern metaphor uh, that's easier to, I think, grasp than this metaphor of uh, giving somebody a will, uh, if I have a three-year-old daughter named Lydia, and if I woke her up one Saturday morning and said, Lydia, today I'm going to take you to get ice cream, and you didn't do anything to earn it, it's not because of your good behavior, it's just because I love you and want to have a fun day with you, and so we're going to get ice cream, and she gets so excited, but as the day goes on, every couple hours, I start to say things like, well, Lydia, you need to start behaving a little bit better or we're not going to go get ice cream. Uh, you know, in fact, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, I'm not going to take you to get ice cream anymore. Well, I'd be talking out of both sides of my mouth, right? Because I promised her I'm going to take you to get ice cream, not based on your good behavior, just because I love you. And now all of a sudden I'm saying, no, you have to do this and that and the other if you want to get the ice cream. And, and so Paul is wrestling with this confusion and it raises this totally valid question that if the law wasn't given in order to earn your acceptance before God, then why was it given? What's the point of the law? And moreover, does the giving of the law contradict the promise? Last week we looked at this promise and we saw that it was, it was unilateral. It was a one direction from God to Abraham. Remember, we talked about the covenant ceremony with Abraham and how only God walked between the animal parts and Abraham didn't, showing this is, this is a one-sided covenant. God is just saying, I'm just gonna bless you and you don't have to do anything to receive it. It was unconditional. But the law, verse 19, verse 19 tells us the law was given through a mediator. Now, Paul here is talking about angels and mediators He's basically just relying on the Jewish tradition that the Old Testament law, which you can read about in Exodus and Leviticus, was spoken to Moses through angels. And that Moses then served as the middleman, the go-between between God and the people. So there's a mediator between two parties. And all that Paul's saying here is that a mediator is only used when there are two parties. But if the promise was unilateral, if God was the only party acting in the promise, then why do we need a mediator for the law? If the, if the promise was unconditional, then why is there a mediator standing between two parties? In other words, is God, by giving both the promise and the law, somehow speaking out of both sides of his mouth? Is he saying, you don't have to do anything to earn this blessing, but oh, hey, you need to do some stuff if you want to earn this blessing? Paul says, verse 21, Absolutely not. But how can he justify that claim? How can he back up the claim that God is not speaking out of both sides of his mouth? By pointing to the reality in the rest of verse 21 and into verse 22 that the law and the promise just have two totally different purposes. He didn't give them for the same thing. They have two totally different purposes. The purpose of the promise, as we saw last week, was to simply bless. It's for God to bless his people that he had chosen. And Paul says, if the purpose of the law was to bless, then we could be justified by it, then we could earn the blessing by it. But he says, that wasn't its purpose. So what is its purpose? Back up to verse 19. Paul says, it was added for the sake of transgressions. 
It was added for the sake of transgressions. And then down to verse 22, he says the scripture right there, he's just using that interchangeably with the law. So he says the law imprisoned everything under sin's power. The law of God was given to expose our slavery to sin. To show us that we are slaves to sin. Now, uh, we're in the United States of America. Among other things that we love, we love freedom. We celebrate it every year by uh, lighting stuff on fire and eating a bunch of hot dogs. Uh, and it's like baked into the American DNA, right, from the beginning. And, and it's, it's baked into our two political parties. It's been interesting to see, uh, if you're familiar with like the, the horseshoe theory of politics, that the further right you go and the further left you go, the, the two parties just mirror each other. Uh, and this is seen in a, in a very common phrase that's used by the far left and now by the far right that represents this idea of freedom. It's a phrase that you've heard and the phrase is my body, my choice. And it's very interesting that during COVID-19, during the worst of the pandemic and at the time that vaccine, uh, the vaccine was rolled out and, and different places were mandating vaccines, you had sort of anti-vaccine folks on the right co-opting this phrase that had been used by left-wing pro-choice advocates for years, which is my body, my choice. And I'm not commenting right now on the validity of either of those uh, political views, but my point is, isn't it funny that in both parties you have the same motivating, animating idea that nobody gets to tell me what to do. This is my body, and I'm not subject to any external restraint. I can do with it whatever I want to do. You see the love of freedom in a community like ours in East Nashville. Where do you see the expression of the love of freedom? You see it in our freedom to express ourselves and our identities however we want. You see it in the celebration of the freedom to love whomever we want to love. You see it in the celebration of our, our freedom to live and be and create and love and do what we want without restraint. Our world loves freedom, and the Bible is actually very pro-freedom. There's a, there's a, freedom is a big theme in the Bible, going back to the very beginning, the Bible issues a clear and compelling call for freedom. And there's a, there's a reason, to give you some historical precedent for this, there's a reason that in the antebellum South, white slave owners did not want slaves to learn how to read. Because they knew that these slaves were Christians, and the first book that they would read would be the Bible. And that would be a big problem for the slave owners because what would they find in the first two books of the Bible? They would open up to Genesis 1 and read that all human beings are created in the image of God. Which, by the way, historically speaking, that idea that human beings are made in the image of God is the foundation for the idea of human rights and liberty. So they would read, wait a second, we're equal to you. you. You don't have any right to own us. We're equal, we're equally made in God's image. And then they would finish Genesis and they'd get to the next book of the Bible, Exodus. And they would read about the harsh and oppressive Egyptian slave owners and Pharaoh oppressing God's people. And they would read about God's people crying out for deliverance and God raising up a deliverer and freeing his oppressed people by bringing these horrible plagues against their oppressors and parting the Red Sea so that his people could walk out on dry land and then closing it up to swallow the entire Egyptian army. 
There's a reason that Exodus inspired slave revolts in the American South. The Bible gives us a very, very compelling call for freedom. Even Galatians 5, which we're going to get to, says that for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. But here's where the Bible's vision of freedom departs from our common views of freedom. The Bible says that the thing that most enslaves you and that you most need to be freed from is not your biology, it's not your family of origin, it's not your, uh, you know, any sort of moral uh, expectations or demands of some other person or community, it's not oppressive social systems. The Bible says that all people are born as slaves of sin and that our greatest need is to be freed from sin. And here's what that means, among other things. It means that the very things that you think are freeing you are actually further enslaving you. The very things that you think are freeing you are actually further enslaving you. When you set out to live your free life over and against the expectations or demands of other people, your family, your community, or systems and structures in society, what you're actually doing, the Bible tells us, is you're making yourself a willing slave to something else, namely, to your own desires. And your desires, the Bible tells us, are the worst slave master. They're corrupt, they're disordered, they're infected by sin. Uh, When people are slaves to their own desires, it leads them into ruin and it leads other people in their lives to ruin. I think this, this was really beautifully illustrated. And by the way, I know this, in our context, this might be really hard to hear. This might be really challenging to hear that you're a slave to sin and your desires are, are, you know, are, are sinful and corrupted, but we see it play out. Like we know intuitively that it's true. And one example of this, in my opinion, a powerful illustration of it was the award-winning movie Marriage Story. If you saw Marriage Story, it stars Adam Driver and uh, Scarlett Johansson. And it details in, in really up-close uh, attention the end of a marriage, details a divorce. And what you see as you watch this gut-wrenching movie is two people who are enslaved to their desires. And so they submit to the desire to have an affair. They submit to the desire to leave a marriage, to end a marriage. And I don't know what the writers of the movie were trying to accomplish, but I can tell you for me what they did accomplish was to display how much havoc it wreaks on your life and the lives of those around you when you submit to your desires. And not only did it crush them as they're going through this divorce, it crushed their child, their son. When we submit to, when we are slaves to our desires, it wreaks havoc in our lives and the lives of those around us. Now isn't this You might say, this seems kind of unloving. (laughs) It seems harsh and unloving to say that people are slaves to sin. Maybe it's even harmful to tell people that they're slaves to sin. What's unloving is to not tell people the truth. And what's unloving is to give people solutions that don't deal with their existential problems. We, We have solutions for surface level problems and that's good and that's fine but to give people solutions that you package as ultimate that don't actually deal with their existential problem leaves them in the end just feeling even worse because gee, I'm so messed up that even the solutions don't work for me. 
I feel even more enslaved than I did when I started trying this. What's loving is to tell people the truth, and the truth is that without Jesus, your pursuit of freedom will only further enslave you. Without Jesus, your pursuit of freedom will only further enslave you. And the law is God's gift to show you that. The law is God's gift, the standard of the way that all of us are called to live that that exposes to us the reality of our own enslavement. It's God's standard held up before us and we see how how far short of it we fall. And then we start trying to do better and we realize I can't do better even when I'm trying. I can't free myself from my own slavery to sin. The law shows us that and makes us throw ourselves at the mercy of the only one who can liberate us, which is Jesus. Another movie it came out in recent years, it's the 2015 movie Room. And Room is a movie based on a book about a true story, a horrible story, uh, of a, a young woman and her young son who were held hostage by an abusive man and they were not able to, he kept them in one room of a house. So they were ne- never able to come out of the room, they were never able to leave the house. Uh, and because the, the boy had basically been there since birth, to protect him, his mother told him that this room was all that there was in the world. As far as he knew, there were two people in the world and this this room was the only place in the world. But of course, there comes a point in the movie in the story, right, where they're gonna escape. But in order to escape, she has to tell her son, there's more to the world than this room. There's life out there. There's freedom out there. There's other people out there. That's the function of the law for us. The law comes in and says, you've been trapped in this room and you don't even know it. You don't even know that there's a whole world out there. There's freedom out there. There's life out there. But you can't get there on your own. You can't free yourself. Somebody else has to come in and free you. And the Bible tells us who it is. And the Bible calls him the promised seed. (laughs) Now, Paul makes a really big deal here about grammar. In verse 16, uh, he says, he says in, in, uh, in verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He doesn't say seeds, plural, but he says seed, singular. Why is he making this point? Well, he's pulling on an Old Testament promise, and there's a practice in the Old Testament when you read prophetic statements in the Old Testament, statements about things that are to come in the future. They're often fulfilled in two ways. There's often an immediate but partial fulfillment and a future and full fulfillment. And so, especially with regard to seed promises, we see this. We see that the promise of the Old Testament is that there's one person coming, an offspring, who will, for one, crush the head of the serpent. So in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin, and God brings this curse on them for their sin, but he tells Eve, your seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. And we see that she has sons, and they have some you know, victory in some way over the serpent, but it's not complete, it's not full or final. There's another seed that's coming. And then we get to Abraham. It's the promise we see here that, that God promises him a, a, an offspring. Isaac is born, and then there's a whole nation, but it's pointing forward to another seed. And then we get to King David, and again, God tells David, you're gonna have a son, and he's gonna rule and reign in a kingdom of justice and righteousness that's gonna last forever and ever And then David has Solomon and it looks like it's going pretty well and then it just tanks and it gets worse and worse. It's pointing forward to the one seed. And then you get to the New Testament. You get to Luke chapter three 
And Luke is recording the genealogy of Jesus. And he says at the end of verse 31 that Jesus is the son of David. The middle of verse 34 that he's the son of Abraham. And the middle of verse 38 that he's the son of Adam. There were partial immediate fulfillments of those promises, but the future fulfillment of all of them. This is, by the way, when, when Paul in 1 Corinthians says, all of God's promises find their yes in Christ, this is what that means. That all of those promises were ultimately pointing forward to him. And Paul is saying that God's promised blessing to Abraham was ultimately about Jesus all along. He's not denying that there were blessings to Abraham's physical descendants, but he's saying that ultimately... The blessing was going to come not to Abraham's physical offspring by means of of reproduction, but to his spiritual offspring by the supernatural process of being born again into a faith that unites us with Jesus Christ, that, that, that actually unites our identity with his so that all the promises that are for him are given to us. And therein, lies the blessed life that we talked about last week, and therein lies the freedom that we've been talking about this morning. Sin, the universal corruption and guilt of all people, is the great enslaver, and the law just tells us that, but then it points us forward to Jesus, who is the great liberator. Sin is the great enslaver, but Christ is the great liberator. So Christian, you're in Christ, don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to slavery. In the Old Testament, after the Exodus, God saves his people, and uh, he leads them out. He's going to lead them to the promised land, but they have to wander through the desert for a while. And, you know, it's easy to read about these people and just be like, what are you doing? Uh, But we're the exact same, right? And they get a couple weeks into it, and they get a little thirsty, And they're like, oh, Moses, why didn't you leave us in slavery? At least we had water back there. And they get hungry and they say, oh, Moses, couldn't you at least let us die with our bellies full back in Egypt? And they want to go back to slavery. And the reality is, the freedom that we have in Christ, the true and ultimate freedom of the soul, is the best thing imaginable, but it's not easy. In fact, the the next couple verses, which I didn't read this morning, kind of compare coming into freedom as growing up. When we're, when we're slaves, we're like children, right, who, who have very little freedom, but they also have very little responsibility. And then we become adults and we have all the freedom in the world, but we have a lot of responsibility. And that's what it's like to be a Christian. You're, you're called to walk in a new way. There's a new life that you're, that you're given to, and it can be challenging. It can be hard. You have to make decisions that aren't easy. But Paul is saying, don't go back to slavery. It wasn't better back there. And you can do this. You can go back into slavery in two ways. You can go back to slavery to your sin. You can just drift very easily back into habits of sin and selfishness and self-absorption. Or you can go back to slavery to the law. Going back to slavery to the law is is, is going back to I can earn God's, God's acceptance and God's grace by my good behavior. Right, so we go back into slavery to sin, which is obedience doesn't matter, or we go back into slavery to the law, which is I earn God's love by my obedience. And practically speaking, I think that most Christians believe intellectually that we have been freed and we have been uh, brought into God's love by grace through faith, but we live practically like we have to keep earning his grace. This is why you beat yourself up so much 
when you're not doing as well as you think you ought to be doing. This is why you feel better about yourself as a Christian when you've had like six quiet times in a row, right? As if that somehow makes you a great, a great Christian. You're saved by grace and you're brought all the way home by grace. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I just wanna lovingly press in and ask, do you feel the weight of your sin? Do you, do you feel the, the slavery to your own desires, to your own corrupt and disordered desires? And do you feel your total and complete inability to do anything about that? Are you starting to, to see, to get the sense that there's a whole world out there of freedom and you can see it now because God's law is held up in front of you and you want to know how to get there? Look to Jesus. He can take you there.